This episode of the EdSurge podcast is brought to you by the Elementary Education Program at Emporia State University. The online master's in elementary education program at Emporia State is designed for career changers interested in becoming elementary teachers. Learn more at emporia.edu grad. That's emporia.edu grad. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Emily Tate. A reporter here. The largest library in the world contains more than 168 million items with materials in some 470 languages and is located just a few miles from my apartment in Washington, D.C. The Library of Congress, situated right behind the U.S. Capitol building and just steps from the Supreme Court of the United States, is one of my favorite spots in D.C. I love its ornate ceilings, the historic reading room, and everything it represents. I've been there many times, but my most recent visit took me down into the basement, past a room where, I'm told, scenes from the movie National Treasure were filmed, and into a recording studio, where I had the opportunity to speak with Jen Rydell, this year's teacher-in-residence at the Library of Congress, and our podcast guest for this week. The teacher-in-residence program is about 20 years old, and it invites one U.S. teacher to spend a year at the library researching, writing, and seeking out primary sources that K-12 teachers across the country could use in their classroom lessons. Then the Library of Congress makes that source material available and easily accessible to all. Past teachers and residents include a middle school science teacher, a kindergarten teacher, and a performing arts teacher. But for this year's program, the library specifically wanted to bring on a civics teacher to build out its digital collection of civics-focused curriculum materials. Jen has been teaching high school civics and history for over two decades. We did this interview at the library back in February, before the COVID-19 outbreak forbid in-person meetings, and when it was still conceivable to think and talk about other things besides the global pandemic. So I'm um, born and raised in Washington State. I grew up in Seattle, and I got my first teaching job in uh, Linden, which is a small Dutch uh, farming town. And I taught there for 19 years and taught pretty much anything that would keep me employed uh, within social studies. But my passion and what I really kind of have a ni- had a niche for there was law-related education, civics, and then AP government and politics. And I also taught geography and then English as well. How did you hear about the Library of Congress Teacher-in-Residence program? And if you could walk us through your thought process of when you decided to apply. So it was one of those, depending on how you see things, coincidence or divine moments where I was up at midnight scrolling in on my Facebook, should have been asleep and was not. And um, someone who I know professionally put on his um, personal Facebook page, he's the social studies coordinator for the state of Washington. And he said, somebody I know should apply for this. And I was like, what in the world is this? And so it piqued my curiosity of what? You You go to the Library of Congress for a year. So... I clicked on the description. I Googled as much as I could in the next 24 hours because I was a little late in the game of considering this. I think I had about a week and a half to get my act, or two weeks to get my act together. And so initially I was all in. And I tend to do that in my life without considering the splash zone with my family of my all in endeavors. And so I told my husband and he said, well, let's just see where it goes. And I said, well, what do you mean? like?" Like, if I got this, we would need to move. Oh, well, you could move. And we have a seventh grader at home, and I also have a college student. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. 
we're all, it's all or nothing. And this is a big ask to ask you to leave your job, move a kid from school, her neighborhood she's known. And so I started to think about it and I thought, this is really great, but maybe this isn't the right time. And I don't want to disrupt the family. And I let a lot of fears govern the what if and the excitement that I originally had. And I had actually started the process. I asked two people to write me letters. I had started to write my answers down for the reflective questions. And and then I pulled out in my head, I thought, I, I can't do this. This is too much to even ask my family because I, I wasn't getting a read on my husband that he was jazzed about this. And so I told the two people that were writing the letters, love you guys, thank you so much, but I don't think so. I think that there's probably a better time in my life to do something like this. And then I was having coffee with a really good friend of mine, and I told her about this, and she looked at me, she goes, I cannot believe you're not applying for that. That's made for you. Something where you get to think about civics and use your lens of social studies and dig into primary sources. And she said, why don't you just let the process decide if you're the right person or not? So she pretty much said the right words at the right time after that coffee date at Starbucks. And I went back home and said to my husband, um, I think I need to apply. So you applied, you found out you got it, and mm -hmm. then you had some logistics to figure out, as you've already mentioned. Um, you uprooted from one Washington <laughs> to another, um, and then you started the job. You became teacher in residence. Um, yep, about three days later, I showed up. And what, can you tell me what that first day was like? Do you remember it? I remember it because it was really, it's, it was my first day of a job outside of the classroom. And so when you think about that, I've been a classroom teacher for 23 years and knew the pacings of what a classroom would be, even though I switched, I'm in a different district than I was for my first part of my career. The LAN and the team had like a welcome sign and we had a little welcome breakfast for myself and our Einstein fellow who we, we both share an office together. And it was just from that point on, just kind of taking it all in of, oh my gosh, I work at and with the Library of Congress that sits behind the Supreme Court and near the Capitol. Mm -hmm. Everything I teach, I'm literally a stone's throw and a five minute walk during lunch to go look at or go observe. This seems like a good point to maybe pause and um, explain what the teacher in residence is and mm -hmm. what you do. So what it's described as is pretty much what it is, but then it's obviously a lot more and it becomes what I think the individual teacher in residence wants it to be. And so for me, that meant I understood I was, I was coming on board as a practicing classroom teacher and that the library was committed to hearing a voice from people within the field. So to make sure that the, both the products and the teacher workshops and anything that is done for teachers and eventually for students is useful and is engaging and is in, in alignment with best practices. So I understood I would uh, assist or, or help in any way possible the professional development team in our office. I also understood that a lot of my time would be um, searching the library's collections with my civics and social studies lens and trying to find primary sources that I thought could be used. And, and then I would, and like in our blog, I would identify a primary source and then suggest, give a little bit of context, but suggest ways it could be used in the classroom. Um, so I've been doing that. Um, and then the other thing that is talked about in the description for the teacher in residence is that the teacher would use the time to try to create meaningful resources to take back to their classroom or their respective districts or their educational service district. So there's a lot of buckets 
But ultimately, there's not really a template to say, thou shall do this. It needs to evolve organically. And, and I appreciate that. Sometimes I think for someone like a type of personality that I have, that's been a little difficult because I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. And the right thing really is like living into this position. After the break, we'll talk with Jen about what she learned during a year away from the classroom. Stay with us. Do you know someone interested in becoming an elementary teacher? Emporia State University's 33-credit-hour elementary education master's program allows individuals to do just that, regardless of their background of study. The coursework is available online, and the clinical classroom experience can be completed at a placement near you, allowing you to earn a master's degree without changing locations. In as little as two years, Emporia students will not only have a master's degree, but they will also be eligible for an elementary education teaching license, depending on their home state's requirements. Send your paras, stay-at-home parents, subs, and anyone else who might be interested to emporia.edu grad to learn more. That address again is emporia.edu grad. Now back to the episode. So would it be uh, accurate to say that a big part of your job is um, going through the library's resources mm-hmm. and finding materials using your expertise as a 23-year veteran in the classroom to, for um, classrooms all over the country as well as your home classroom? Yeah, it's kind of you're juggling both of those. They're not mutually exclusive, and you're hoping that you have a broad audience. We have the blog is probably something, while I, I think on average I've maybe done two entries in a, a month, um, that's something that I, I hope that anything I put out on that is because we've titled them Teaching Civic Principles Through Using Primary Sources. And so my in the fall, I focused a lot on the concept, the civic concept of federalism. And I would try to find resources, like I focused on Cherokee removal. And I tried to find what primary sources do we have that a teacher might use, not just to teach that historical tragedy and instant and moment in our time, but also to think about it through a civics lens of federalism. I looked at uh, school desegregation and kind of after Little Rock, the closing of the schools to avoid further integration the year after that. And we have some amazing photos in our collections that show an empty hallway. It shows students getting their education through TV because the school system shut down for a year, refusing to integrate after that momentous year. And so recently, actually one of my favorite blog post, I hope it's useful, is we spent a lot of time because we just offered a Rosa, we have the Rosa Parks exhibit here, um, and we have her papers that are digitized, and we spent a lot of time trying to find resources for our teacher workshop we had, and one of them is a fairly short document, and Rosa Parks wrote on everything. She wrote on the back of her receipt. She wrote on the back of an envelope, and this particular one describes why she chose on the day of her arrest, why she chose to refuse to give up her seat. And what's really fascinating about it, and one of the teachers' interaction in our workshop got me thinking about this, was she crosses out a lot of words in her description, like she's working really hard to get the right words. It's almost as though she knew how important for the rest of us in posterity it would be to know why she did what she did and what she hoped it would accomplish. And so I highlighted that particular, it's not a very long document. Um, I highlighted it and I suggested that you could look at it through a lot of lenses, both the writing process. You can look at what her word choice reflected about segregated America, Jim Crow America. And, 
and then ask kids to surmise, you know, why do you think she chose the word she did, knowing what you know about that time period? And I mean, that's the thing that's been amazing is just to sit and reflect upon these these pillars in my mind of American history who are so much more than what we often um, describe them as. And she is the bus boycott, no doubt. But she is so much more than that. And she endured so much more that, I mean, we're standing on her shoulders. Mm-hmm. Do you by chance remember like one word she crossed out for another? Uh, she, in that document, oh, now you would put me on the spot if I had it in front of me. She uh, crossed out, she was, she talked about why, what happened is she, she, she was arrested and she's having an interaction with the police officer. And she says to the officer, why is the law the way it is? Why do you treat us this way? And the, and she uses the word, the pronoun we, why do you, why, why are things treated or why are we treated this way? And, and that was really interesting to me that in her interaction as a singular person with the officer, she uses a plural pronoun. The officer responds to her and says, I don't know. The law is the law. And, and maybe I'm reading more than I should, but I thought it was really a poignant interaction that suggests that I think in reading her words and, and knowing about her, at the core of who she was, she represented all people that had been oppressed. And in that moment, I believe that officer represented all people who had power and had privilege. And he didn't have to think about anybody beyond himself. And she did. So after our conversation, Jen and I actually had the chance to walk through the Rosa Parks exhibit in the Library of Congress and look through these documents together. So we're going to skip ahead and play you a bit from that moment here. Like, I think I can find real quick the document that I referenced. This is early. Oh, I see all of the crossouts that you mentioned. Yeah, oh, she's notorious, so here we go. Here we go. I had been pushed around all my family. I had been pushed around all my life and felt this moment that I couldn't take it anymore. When I asked the policeman why we had to be pushed around, he said he didn't know. The law is the law. You are under arrest. I didn't resist. Okay, back to the interview with Jen. And I thought that her description of that and then the words surrounding why, because after that point, she talks about that she uh, she basically did what he wanted. And she's trying to describe in her deleted words why she didn't resist. And that in itself, I like if I could ask her, why? You just had, he just told you that the law is the law, lady. I don't know. And it, it suggests to you in his tone and word choice, I don't know why it is. It just is the way it is. I'm not going to question it. And I would love to ask her, in your description of that day, why weren't you more feisty? You started out with, I chose to resist this day because I could, I've been pushed around all my life. But then why at the end of that did you say, I did what he wanted? That's a really interesting example. And every, and that's one of the things that in this job I've had to learn. We have so, I mean, I should know the exact amount of millions in the collections. The internet told me it was 168 million. I, I think the Google is correct. And even the <laughs> library site that you might have consulted is correct. And of that 168 million, not everything is digitized. 
And so the lens we use in our in the uh, learning and innovation department is anything we're going to suggest for classroom use needs to be digitized because it's really kind of unfair to say, hey, teacher type, this is a really compelling primary source to engage your students in history and analysis, but you have to physically be sitting at the library. Oh, and actually there's copyright restrictions too. Sorry, figure something else out. And so what anything we promote on the blogs, on articles, or at conferences is completely free of any restriction. And so um, that makes the job a little tricky sometimes, but it also means when we do find those gems, um, these primary sources can hopefully really engage students and be compelling as they critically analyze the past. So if I understand correctly, teachers and residents devote um, a lot of their time to one particular project. Is is that the case? And They can. They can. And so my project was um, because you're told to propose a project in your application. And and ultimately, your idea would be that you're using the resources of the library um, and your time and your physical time and space here to then take back something that can be meaningful and impacting in a classroom setting. So what I've, I proposed was I wanted to create um, case studies of civic principles that were anchored in different historical moments in time. I think the power of civics, I mean, there's so many reasons why civics is a powerful discipline and everybody needs to understand it's principles and not just to pass citizenship test, although that's one facet, is that um, if students can see that civic principle like separation of powers or checks and balances, how that was interpreted, tested, defined, or abused in different moments in time, they can see a much richer understanding of that civic ideal and how, when as a nation we've gotten it right and when we've really flubbed up. And so I propose that of, say, five civic ideals that I would write two to three case studies using primary sources. Um, now, keep in mind, when I proposed this project, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I still don't know a lot of what I don't know, but I know more than what I didn't know than back in August. And so some of what I've done on blogs, I've cho chosen to spend my time trying to find curate sources I think would be powerful to use in a U.S. history and civics class are also things that I'll take back as my project. But what I've, a lot of my time really has been spent, and I like it, is on professional development and assisting our professional development team on teacher trainings and talking through what sources are we going to use, what strategies would best support those sources, what do we hope our attendees are going to get out of it. Now, who are the teachers that you're training in these? So I've been able, I've been part of a couple on-site trainings here at the library. One was in the fall on suffrage, since we have our suffrage exhibit. Um, and they were K-12 teachers. They tended to be, for the most part, maybe 6-12, grade 6-12. Um, we had a Rosa Parks training at the beginning of February that was just phenomenal in the sense that the energy, the excitement, and the suffrage training was good too, but there was a different um, level of engagement. I mean, we had a waiting list on that one that we had to turn people away, which not good for those folks, but a good problem to have. And they were, we had elementary people, which I really give them credit because elementary is just stretched and social studies frequently falls to the wayside because it's not tested. Often elementary school teachers, unless they felt really strong in that as subjects when they went through college, they often don't know how to approach it in the younger grades, particularly primary grades. 
And so when they were there present at the training, it was really fun to show them ways to use primary sources with emerging readers or kids that needed to access photos or some type of really um, supported document of the past to show that primary sources are powerful regardless of the age of the learner. So what would you say you have learned the most or something that really has resonated with you, like an aha moment, something that you're going to carry with you? from the last few months? My aha is I have been given a gift of stepping out of the classroom, which I love kids and I love helping kids get their lights turned on for learning. And I currently work in an alternative high school that most of the students that are there, and what that means, a public alternative high school, we use project-based learning. Most of the students that come to us, the traditional models of high school haven't worked well for them. And a lot of them are dealing with um, pretty big issues in their lives, addiction, homelessness. And it's a great job. It's also a very taxing job. And for me to have a year to step outside of that and remind myself that I'm actually a very curious person and the sense of wonder that when you're in the classroom and you're trying to meet the student needs and stay ahead of the game for what they're going to work on next in the week, there's a lot of spinning plates. And those spinning plates, I think, can start to limit your paradigms and start to limit your sense of wonder as a person and sense of wonder in a classroom because you have a lot of systems that are telling you what needs to happen. And sometimes those systems can kind of squelch out curiosity and creativity. Um, So as you alluded to, the call for applications for next year's Mm -hmm. teacher in residence um, has been opened and it specifically mentions a teacher of journalism Mm -hmm. or economics. I know that's a little bit different than what Mm -hmm. your focus area is, but what would your advice be to him or her? If someone is given this opportunity, come in and be, be grounded in the fact that you were selected because you have expertise in a particular area. But that doesn't mean that you know everything. And, and being sensitive to you are an expert, but you don't know everything and holding those two things at the same time, they're not mutually exclusive. And I think that allows you to just learn for learning's sake. And sometimes you're going to go down rabbit holes that you're like, okay, that didn't yield anything productive. But I think it actually does because it, it pushes your view of the world, of information, of people. I was asked to talk about the teacher in residence position to the Advisory Committee on the Records of Congress. And if you don't know what that is, I didn't either. I had to look it up. But then I went and I I prepared my speech telling what I did, and then they gave me 10 minutes. 10 minutes is a really long time. And then I was like, oh, shoot, what am I going to talk about? And I thought, self, tell them what the realities are of the classroom, because the people sitting at this table was the archivist of the United States. It was the historian of the House and the Senate. It was National Archives um, staff members, people from public, high up in public um, libraries. These are the people that are, are curating and archiving our collective stories. And they really want to make things accessible for teachers and students. And so when I realized that, I thought, okay, why don't you tell them what your experience has been and what what does it mean to have a 21st century classroom? Because most of the people sitting at this table probably were pretty good students. They weren't students coming from marginalized situations that need all of this information and stories even more so than, than other pockets of students. And so I got to use that opportunity to speak. And I, I got to tell you, first I thought, I can do this. And then I stood up in front of them. And I think I 
played a good game. But my knees were buckling behind that podium because I realized I was talking to some people that are some serious historical power brokers. So lastly, mm-hmm. I you, you have this unique opportunity to spend a year mm-hmm. um, in the nation's capital and you as a lover of history and <laughs> civics, I would love to know what has been the best part about living in D.C. for these last few months. Well, I was thinking about that, and I don't think it's a one-time event. I think it's just the mere opportunity of being near to power brokers, to institutions of government I teach about, but I could physically go to those buildings and access some of those individuals. Part of this position has had me go meet different representatives from Washington State. I got up real early one morning and stood in line and was successful in getting one of the 50 public tickets to go watch oral arguments at the Supreme Court on the New York pistol and gun case. And uh, that was on my civics nerd teacher bucket list of just getting to do that. Um, And I also was able to go pay respects to Representative Elijah Cummings. um, And I never would have had that opportunity and to just dwell upon that moment in history. And most recently, I've had the opportunity to go observe in the Senate gallery the closing arguments during the impeachment trial. Wow. Really a um, participant in primary sources of history. We just, we really felt like as a family, too, that if we're going to do this and change our way of life for at least 10 months, that we need to make the most of every opportunity we've been given. This is a gift. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we bring you conversations like this one. So if you like what you hear, you can listen to all our past episodes and keep up with future episodes by subscribing on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. This episode was edited by me, Emily Tate, and produced by Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education. Thanks for listening.